Once upon a time, when Vladimir Putin frequently traveled the world and held audience with various world leaders, he was notorious for making people wait. He kept Queen Elizabeth waiting for 14 minutes during a state visit to the UK in 2003. Apparently, a dog barked its head off at Putin when he finally did show up. And allegedly, the Queen later joked, dogs have interesting... Sorry, I should do this in an English accent. Dogs have interesting... <laughs> I can't do it. Dogs have interesting instincts, don't they? That's what she said, allegedly. Could be apocryphal. Who knows? In 2014, he met with German Chancellor Angela Merkel four hours later than scheduled after showing up late in the middle of a dinner with a bunch of world leaders. I think that's pushing, that's pushing fashionably late. That's no longer fashionable. Anyway, things have changed a bit. A bit for Russia's president since he ordered a full-scale invasion of Ukraine. You've probably heard about that. In mid-September, during bilateral meetings of the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, a political, economic, and security group, Putin was the one standing around twiddling his thumbs in front of photographers while other leaders kept him waiting. How about that? On Twitter, BBC journalist Andrei Zakharov shared photographs of Putin standing alone, flanked by Russia's tricolor and the flags of Turkey, Azerbaijan, Kyrgyzstan, and then India. In fact, here's the audio of Putin waiting for the president of Kyrgyzstan. Let it be your moment of zen for today. One of the highlights of September's SCO summit was Putin's meeting with President Xi Jinping. The Russian and Chinese delegations gathered at a roundtable surrounding what looked like a casket, and the dialogue wasn't exactly electric. Putin took his typical shots at Western attempts to maintain unipolarity and thanked Beijing for its balanced position in connection with the Ukrainian crisis. And in his response, Xi also lobbed some thinly veiled criticism at the U.S., mentioning zero-sum games, block politics, and color revolutions. But he also emphasized the responsibility of major powers and the need to instill stability and positive energy into a world in turmoil. All this came just a few weeks after Nancy Pelosi, the Speaker of the U.S. House of Representatives, completed a two-day trip to Taiwan. That was in early August. And that prompted a whole mess of military exercises and training activities by Beijing in the areas north, southwest, and southeast of the island nation. Ahead of the visit, one Chinese nationalist commentator, the former editor-in-chief of the state tabloid Global Times, even said that Beijing should shoot down Pelosi's plane if she arrived with a fighter jet escort. About a month later, President Biden would tell CNBC that U.S. forces would defend Taiwan in the event of a Chinese invasion. His most explicit statement so far on the issue. The Chinese government has consistently threatened to take Taiwan by force if the government there declares formal independence. During Pelosi's visit to the island, Russian state propagandists like Margarita Simonyan were almost foaming at the mouth, apparently desperate to draw the two most powerful countries on earth into a shooting war that would presumably weaken Western resolve to counter Russia's aggression in Ukraine. Efforts to contain Russia in Europe and counter Russia's 
rise around the world, America's big two-front task right now, is a common theme in op-eds and just geopolitical pontification wherever it happens. The same goes for the prospects and the consequences of Russia's pivot to the East, away from Europe and the West. Two months after Pelosi's visit, fears of a war over Taiwan have happily receded. But it's only a matter of time before that conflict flares up again, somehow, some way. So, however unlikely the scenario, it's worth asking, what would happen if fighting does break out over the island? And if China invaded Taiwan, what would it mean for Russia's invasion of Ukraine? Welcome to The Naked Pravda. Howdy, folks. Welcome back to the podcast. I'm your host, Kevin Rothrock, the managing editor of Medusa's English Language Edition. Today, we're continuing the third season's theme of addressing hypotheticals, big hypotheticals. Today's question, what would Chinese military action against Taiwan mean for Russia's invasion of Ukraine? Before jumping into today's interviews, allow me to remind listeners that Medusa now relies on contributions from people like you in our international audience to sustain our everyday operations. Millions in Russia and other countries read our news coverage. Even though they're now based abroad, our journalists obtain exclusive information about what goes on behind the closed doors of the Russian authorities. Our team delivers Medusa's most important stories in English, and we reach thousands of journalists and professionals all over the world with our special English-language newsletter and podcast. So please visit our website to make a one-time or recurring donation, and tell your friends and colleagues about our fundraising if you can. Okay, let's... Get to today's show. In an article last month, co-authored with Dmitry Alperovich, Dr. Sergei Radchenka, a professor of international relations at the Johns Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies, argued that Russia's political leadership has lost sight of the country's national interest and put itself on a path to becoming a vassal of China by pursuing a hostile relationship with the West. Russian political experts are aware of these warnings, of course, for example, Andrei Kartunov at the Russian International Affairs Council recently criticized the notion that Moscow would ever allow itself to become dependent on China, saying that the two countries have certain overlapping interests, and that's where they'll cooperate. Beijing isn't anti-Russia, it's pro-China. I asked Dr. Rodchenko why he thinks the Putin regime has basically painted itself into a corner when it comes to its relations with China. I mean, look, it's all about the wiggle room. It's all about it's all about creating yourself the strategic space for maneuver. Right. Uh, and for Russia, this position would be in keeping some sort of equidistance between the West and China. Mm. In many ways, you know, you have a narrative already now today of an accelerating uh, Sino-American conflict, confrontation, you know, strategic competition, you name it what, what, what you will, but this is a relationship that is likely going to define the 21st century. For Russia as a medium power, it's no longer the superpower that it was, the best position for it to have is to sort of really leverage its relationship with the West against China and its relationship with China against the West. This is, if you're looking at this from the perspective of Russia's national interests as as objectively understood, not as Putin imagined in, in, in his bunker. Mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> instead, what you see is Russia shuts itself off from the West, which means that it has completely lost leverage that it had with China. Yeah. And you can see that in many areas. You can see it, for example, in, in price negotiations for, for 
natural export of natural resources. Mm-hmm. You know, you can you can also legitimately ask questions. What if the Chinese use their increasing economic leverage to put push Russia in the direction of positions where Russia is not comfortable with, for example, in relation to something in South China Sea, in relation to the conflict in the Himalayas between China and India. You know, Russia has has actually had a pretty good run in this relationship with China, which I would never call an alliance. I always called it an alignment because their interests overlap, but Russia still maintained the required degree of flexibility still was, you know, and then the, and the Chinese respected this. And now it seems that the Chinese are maybe still respecting this to a certain extent, but they have all the leverage. And it was completely unforgivable for Putin to put Russia in a position where it has lost all leverage with China. And it doesn't make any sense from the standpoint of Russia's national interest. So that is the argument. And the, the fact that, that Russia is now in this this position where China has all the leverage, where I mean, you you use, you use the word vassal. Is that specific to the nature of the Chinese political regime, or is if you flip the tables in some bizarro world where Russia has is doing aggression against China and is pivoted entirely to the West, is Russia at risk of becoming a vassal of the West? Is this is the vassal is that a comment on just the power dynamics, or is it also? specific to the, the the sort of political regime nature of the of the state we're talking about sure and and vassal is a is an, a, an offending term you know people <laughs> do not like the term vassal and triggers that, people yeah <laughs> yeah i mean i i generally have tried to steer clear of the term vassal uh-huh. except when it has become clear that russia is becoming a vassal <laughs> <laughs> so I, the argument against using the word vassal has been this that russia retains strategic autonomy in, in making its strategic choices because it is it is a nuclear power. Yeah. It has nothing to fear from China uh, and so on. But we have seen how useful nuclear weapons have been to Putin in resolving his aggression in Ukraine. I mean, so far he hopefully, hasn't... Hopefully seen, we've seen all of everything. Best of we may not have seen the end of it, but <laughs> yeah. so far, you know, so far the fact that Russia is a nuclear superpower well, it has, of course, had an impact. It had an impact on the American thinking about Russia and what to provide, how to help Ukraine. Of course, it helped. It, it, it had uh, it had an impact. But what I'm trying to say here is that the fact that Russia is a nuclear power has not actually uh, uh, helped its ability to wage a successful war in Ukraine. So that is uh, that is one part of the question. And then you know you can also ask, well, how much the fact that Russia is a nuclear power, how much has it helped Russia? dictate uh, its prices, gas and oil prices in, in, in uh, relations with China. I would argue not very much. Yes. So there are limits to this whole strategic autonomy. And I understand the argument in broad terms of we're talking about economic relations, Russia becoming economically dependent on China. For now, for trade, obviously, because Russia has to make up for the loss of trade with the West. But in the, in, in, in the future, also for critical technologies that Russia is unable to import uh, from the West, and so on, you know, if China becomes a source of all of those things for Russia, Russia will become increasingly dependent and it is already becoming increasingly dependent on China, which means that its space for maneuver is going to be quite limited. Now, it's another thing. It's another thing to argue that China will use Russia's weakness to push through things that are advantageous to its interests. I, I'm not saying that Russia, that China necessarily will do that, although we can see China trying to begin to do that, trying to do that in Central Asia, as we have seen from from the recent uh, 
visit of Xi Jinping. Right. Do you think that Beijing, is it possible that Beijing will have buyer's remorse at all here by essentially, by, if, if Russia turns to China and essentially becomes economically dependent on China for all these all this lost trade, and China, does China then inherit some kind of, does it, does it, does it get, does it, do problems come with that by doing all this business with Russia and essentially becoming the sole provider of so much to Russia? Does that put China in a situation where it, it has, it's sort of saddled by all these irresponsible international acts, you know, committed in Moscow? No, not, not, not really. Mm -hmm. No, I think for China to have this kind of leverage over any country is fantastic. I mean, <laughs> for China, would, yeah, for China is great. For <laughs> right. China, of course, you know, the Chinese are playing it, playing it very carefully. Yeah. The Chinese are playing it smart compared to Putin. Xi Jinping has not resorted to any kind of reckless policies quite to the same extent, certainly as Putin has. Yeah. Um, so this is all good news for China. I'm very happy for them. I mean, my concern <laughs> is really about Russia. Yeah. Of becoming the junior partner, but also, you know, it's not economically Russia was going to become a junior partner to China. It's just in many ways inevitable. It's yeah. an outcome of demographics, of economy, various things. Mm -hmm. What is not inevitable is Russia deliberately shutting itself from from the West and saying, "Yeah, now we are we pivot to China and <laughs> lose all our leverage." Because one of the things that made Russia for more of an equal partner to China was the fact that Russia had somewhere else to turn. If you don't have anywhere else to turn, then yeah. you know you're stuck. Sure. Speaking of potentially reckless international policies and acts, what the hell happens to the Ukraine war if China invades Taiwan, or if even if that situation just escalates in some some new way? Could could the United States manage these two conflicts simultaneously? Like, what does Kiev lose its support, or does it gain even more? What do you what do you What's possible? Yeah, I mean, it's very difficult for the United States to manage uh, two conflicts simultaneously. So it's a question of national strategy. So, you know, we, we can expect that if tensions flare up in the Taiwan Straits, then the United States will, will be drifting a little bit in Europe and we'll hope that European allies will pick up the slack in relations to uh, supporting Ukraine in the war against Russia. So that is why, I mean, from Russia's perspective, having tensions flare up in the Strait was, it would be a great idea. I mean, they have been trying to achieve that by being the cheerleaders every time you know, there there was some hint of tension. And even now, when Putin met with Xi Jinping, he again alluded to that. So from, from Russia's perspective, this would be great news. From Xi Jinping's perspective, you know, Xi Jinping has been very careful. They, of course, if you look at the broad trajectory of, of this question of reunification, you know, China, quote-unquote, lost Taiwan in 1949 when the Chinese communists came to power in the mainland and Chiang, Chiang Kai-shek fled to Taiwan. And since then, they vowed to have reunification, to reunify one day. They wanted to do it peacefully, but there was always, rhetorically, there was always this claim that if peaceful reunification proves impossible, that they're willing to use military means or non-peaceful means. So in this sense, nothing has really changed in, in the Chinese rhetoric from before. What has changed, according to some observers, is China's capability, but also some say that Xi Jinping may feel like he is working against a deadline of some kind and that, you know, Taiwan could well proclaim independence and to preempt, you know, to preempt that he has to do something. So that is where the, a lot of the concern comes from. And would that proclam, would, if Taiwan were to proclaim independence, would that change much on the ground? I mean, what exactly would, why, why is that so significant other than symbolically? 
Well, Taiwan proclaiming independence is the big red line for China. They yeah. have long threatened it, uh, threatened to, to use force if this were to happen. And of course, it's it's tricky with Taiwan, much as with Ukraine, because in Taiwan you have democratic politics. Yeah. Uh, so so you know, come next Taiwan elections, uh, you might have a change uh, in in the government. And uh, the new president might say, well, hello, we're proclaiming independence because we always wanted to do that. But the, the, I mean, the interesting thing here is the position of the United States, because the U.S. is trying to prevent China's attack on Taiwan. And so the United States is finding itself in a kind of peculiar position. It doesn't really want to encourage Taipei to proclaim independence. Officially, by the way, the United States still abides by one China policy officially, right? This was the one China policy that was endorsed in the 19. Uh, 72 Shanghai communique. And so it's a policy that, that favors the status quo. And the United States has been very careful not to do things, generally speaking, that would add to the tensions and, and amount to some kind of either green light to Taiwan to declare independence or amount to some kind of provocation. But at the same time, they've always, they've, they've been trying to deter China from active preemptively. But this, this very careful balancing act has not always worked. For example, in recent uh, months, as you know, there has been a deterioration of tensions due to the speaker Pelosi's visit to, to Taiwan, which was uh, seen by the Chinese as very provocative. And so some, a lot of people have been asked, well, was this necessary? Was, was this a good idea or maybe not a good idea? Once it was announced, are you even allowed to kind of backtrack from it and, and postpone it? Or would this be a concession to the Chinese? So it's all... It's like a game of signaling. You signal one thing to Beijing, they signal something else. And hopefully, you know, the two sides signal enough to each other to avoid a conflict or to, you know, avoid a uh, change in the status quo. For more insights into the Chinese government's perspective on the war in Ukraine and the global order generally, I turn to Dr. Natasha Kurt a senior lecturer in international peace and security in the Department of War Studies at King's College London. She cautioned me that any speculation about how Beijing sees things is dangerous, given how little is stated explicitly. I mean, reading China is always um, <laughs> interesting. They like the fact that they're difficult to read, and we know that's a kind of deliberate policy almost, I think, because essentially... Obviously, with the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, you know, you're talking about, you know, a number of different countries. You're not talking about just a bilateral kind of relationship between Russia and China. And I think given the concerns of some of the Central Asian states with regard to what's happening in Ukraine with regard to the war, Russia's war on Ukraine and the potential implications down the line for them, I think some of it I would read as China persuading their concerns, if you like. So that whole talk about stability, you know, their concern for stability and so on, I think was also partly for their benefit. You know, I'm sure it may also have been a kind of little barb directed at Putin, but China is always quite good at um, seeming to address everybody and seeming to, you know, take into account um, everybody's concerns, if you like. So I think that's important, given that China is very much, has always been the driver, really, of the Shanghai Cooperation Organization. And of course, you know, at the heart of the compact, if you like, at the heart of that organization is battling against 
the three evils of separatism, terrorism, fundamentalism. So I think it was important for China to be seen to be at least paying lip service to certainly being against separatism, being for territorial integrity. You've probably been asked this many times, and you just sort of you just commented on it in some degree. You said that that China has these sort of three priorities in its engagement with the region. But what what generally do you perceive China's perspective to be on the invasion of Ukraine? Because there's often this, you know, they're both kind of China and Russia, the two sort of uh, not not outsiders certainly, but or maybe Russia is now an outsider. But like the, they're the challengers to the Western hegemony or something like this. And China is the more responsible, kind of patient power, and Russia's, you know, losing, lost its patience or lost its its head or something. What's the Chinese perspective on the war? It's very difficult to find it out, to be honest, because you know they really are in hiding. I mean, in you know, hiding, <laughs> really, very little being said about it, and mm-hmm. openly. So you have to kind of try and second guess. I mean, I think. Broadly speaking, without knowing for sure, I certainly don't think that China would approve of this full-scale invasion. I mean, okay, you could argue that, you know, were Russia to be victorious, that this would be of benefit to China. Obviously, China has also, similarly to Russia, portrayed this war as essentially a proxy war, you know, with the West. So clearly, you know, Russia's victory would be a win for, you know, anti hegemonic powers, you know, and a win for, you know, the fairer world order that they all want to see, et cetera, et cetera. But at the same time, you know, clearly the kind of instability that this brings about, and then also the unfortunate, unfortunately, I think for China, the kind of unity um, that has been demonstrated by the West, which I think China was certainly not expecting, you know, the unity around I mean, by and large, the unity around sanctions and the kind of commitment to sending Ukraine military hardware and so on, I think is quite a a shock to China. And, you know, it's also a shock to China to see that, you know, this military superpower so-called is actually uh, appearing to be losing strategically in Ukraine, you know, given the kind of quite close strategic coordination at times between the two, given the joint military exercises. I mean, China's still learning. China's been learning, obviously not only from Russia, but it's been learning quite a lot from observing Russia and Syria, for example, from you know conducting joint military exercises and so on, because China is still developing its warfighting capability. So then to see a country like Russia appearing to lose strategically and appearing to have made um, a huge strategic error is, I think, uh, very sobering for China. Is the Chinese military more like Russia's than it is like the United States military? Like, is the, is the comparison more, is it closer to Russia's military? In what sense? Well, I guess in, in, whatever, in whatever sense is relevant to fighting a war like this. Like, when, when China sees the Ukraine war, do they think, oh, that would be us? No, we, wouldn't, well, we, it's, we, we wouldn't be the Ukrainians fighting with American weapons. We would be the Russians losing. Yeah, I mean, I don't think you can really compare it to okay. either. I mean, the the thing with China is obviously it's been trying to build up its blue water navy, you know, something that's going to take quite some time. I mean, China obviously has always kind of touted its conventional military capability, you know, differently perhaps to 
to Russia and, and other powers. But I think that China's military is really not ready yet for any kind of assault on Taiwan. You know, and given well, what would it? What I mean, I know that it's part of Beijing's long-term strategy, essentially to reabsorb or to conquer Taiwan. What kinds of if you've mentioned that they're you're building up their kind of the distance of their navy, blue water fleet, and so on. What are some of the other modernizations or just changes that they're making to their military with the with the, with an eye to either Taiwan or to other expansion in the region? Well, I mean they're building up their capability in terms of. I mean they've already been using unmanned systems over these islands near to Taiwan and so on. So it's that kind of aerial capability as well that I think that they're building up. But I think that with Taiwan, I mean, I don't personally see an invasion of Taiwan being imminent. I mean, even taking Ukraine out of the equation, you know, China wants to focus on economic growth and economic strength and piling a load of resources into Taiwan when also obviously quite differently to Ukraine the U.S. could potentially get involved. I mean, obviously, the U.S. hasn't explicitly said that it would come to the defense of Taiwan. It tends to kind of keep that slightly ambiguous. But the chances of the U.S. actually intervening on the side of Taiwan are, are relatively high. And obviously, in the case of Ukraine, the U.S. is extremely unlikely to intervene. So that also changes, you know, makes it very different, a very different kind of gamble, if you like. Right. For China, you know, given the kind of geopolitical and geostrategic implications, you know, and it, I mean, they've seen what can happen with Ukraine. I mean, it's a different scenario, but they've seen what can happen to, you know, a huge power like Russia, you know, the economic fallout from that as well, and the political fallout potentially as well. I mean, I think the thing is that China is biding its time with Taiwan, and it has been obviously kind of, you know, building up the economic connections and so on with Taiwan. Although some people are saying, you know, that has been rather disrupted with COVID and also the kind of goodwill, if you want to call it that, that might have been displayed vis-a-vis China, you know, it's kind of slightly obviously tarnished its image, you know, given what it did in Hong Kong, backing down on protesters and so on. There's not a foregone conclusion, but even so, the kind of connections between the two are so strong. So I don't think that China necessarily would want to jeopardize that. I wonder, do you, this is, again, this is, I'm asking you to do a lot of mind reading here, but the, the whole invasion of Ukraine, you know, sort of fueled by revanchism and, and so on, do you think it's a cautionary tale? Do you think Beijing's looking at this and being like, wow, that is, that is not the way to be? This is, you know, the, the assumption seems to be that China feels like time is on its side, that the world, the future is, is its for the taking. That would, yeah. I would assume that would mean that trying to grab things by force is messy and unnecessary. And, and you just look at what Putin's done in Ukraine and it, do, it doesn't look like, it doesn't look like it's made him stronger. And well, I think it is, it's certainly intended as a cautionary tale on the part of, of the American policymakers. <laughs> it is certainly, you know, there is a, there's a Chinese, there's a Chinese saying that fully applies to the situation, Sha Ji Jing Ho, which means to kill a chicken in order to scare the monkey. Okay. So Russia is being chicken here. And the monkey that is being scared is the Chinese, you know. Uh, 
<laughs> so, so using that Chinese proverb, I guess we can, you know, we can kind of analyze American foreign policy here. And I understand this. I totally understand this. Now, what the Chinese are learning, of course, they're lear learning a great deal. You know, the Chinese always very closely observe stuff that is happening somewhere else in the world and, and, and make and draw lessons from this. Consider the collapse of the Soviet Union. This was a great lesson for them in many ways, and they keep studying it. I'm not sure if they're coming to the right conclusions, right. Uh, but they certainly have. In, you know, uh, uh, done a very careful job in, in trying to explore why the Soviet Union collapsed and, you know, concluding obviously that it was because you know, Gorbachev allowed liberalization and things like that. And they also monitored very closely the collapse of Saddam Hussein's armies in the first Gulf War mm -hmm. and learned from that that you have to modernize, you know, China's army was very similar in its uh, capabilities and scope, et cetera, to Saddam's army at that time. And so they have invested they, in, in various types of new weaponry. They have launched an aircraft carrier program and various, various other things. And they're, of course, trying to, now they're observing very closely what is happening in Ukraine. And I'm sure that they're drawing their lesson that a supposedly great power like Russia could be humiliated like this yeah. you know, by, by Ukraine. You know, to them, this is certainly something that they will have to draw lessons from, but will they draw lessons about, oh, we should never reunify with Taiwan? I don't think so, because that's a very different narrative that just exists out there. This is part of China's legitimacy narrative. You know, this whole idea that China was humiliated for a hundred years, starting from the opium wars and all these foreigners came and tried to divide China and turn it into colonies, you know, colony or semi-colony. And then after that, the communist party came to power and brought liberation and unification. And so that is part of the legitimacy discourse and Taiwan is very much a part of that. Right. But uh, so it's not going to go away, whatever Russia does. I think what may, uh, the lesson, okay, there are two possible lessons that they'll draw. First is, you know, uh, this is a bad idea because this could create, this could ruin Chinese economy, et cetera. The second, and that's a little bit more worrying for us, is uh, it's a good idea, but we just have to be better prepared than the Russians. <laughs> right. <laughs> You've been listening to The Naked Pravda. On today's show, you heard from two experts on Russia's China policy, Professor of International Relations Sergei Radchenka at the Johns Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies, and Dr. Natasha Kurt, a senior lecturer in international peace and security in the Department of War Studies at King's College London. Thanks for tuning in. On future episodes of the show, we'll be discussing the impact of sanctions on Russian commercial aviation, the future of Chechnya's dictatorship, and more. See you next week. Mm -hmm.